Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to the Risen Nation Church podcast. I pray that this message today impact your life and above all, draw you into a deeper encounter with Jesus. You guys ready to learn today? Did you guys bring notes? All right, so we're gonna take a lot. Thank you, sir. Can you guys open your Bibles to Acts chapter two? And we're just gonna look at, at something really quick in the book of Acts. Holy Spirit, come today and help me, Jesus, stay according to my notes and what you told me to wrote. Write, okay, amen, thank you. Wrote, write, same, all right. Go to, go to verse 42, and I just, I want us to see something. Um, and we're, we're calling to, I'm gonna call today a, a generation called Jacob. And, uh, Today is going to be a little bit more of maybe a teaching-heavy Sunday, but I want us to see something because I believe we're going into, into a place at the end of the year, and how many of you have signed up for habitation, ready to go? Come on. It's going to be a, uh, insane. It's going to be fun. Um, if you are watching online or you're in the room and you haven't registered yet, still register even though it says overflow seating. If we're being honest with ourselves, we've oversold every area already, but we're gonna, we are going to put people into every square inch of this room. And if we have to open the lobby doors and have over, we're gonna do everything we can, all right? We'll just keep the bathroom somewhat open for restroom time. But please register and get here. I don't care if we have people outside, we gotta set up speakers. The Lord is gonna be among us, all right? But as we go into the end of the year, and just so you know, as a reminder, we are having a Christmas Eve service. What time is that at? We haven't actually decided yet. That's probably not... Five, five o'clock, and it's going to be an hour and a half. One hour and a half. Don't laugh. I'm going to come up here. I'm going to do an interpretive dance, and then we're all going to go home, and it's going to be fun. Thanks, thanks, Costi and I. We've been we've been practicing, uh, guys. True story. We used to have to dance all the time in church. My dad used to make us do it, and there's video evidence out there. Chris, too, was a part of that. Um, so you never know. Maybe for old time's sake, Resurrection Life days, we just start doing uh, the running man again in front of everybody. Uh, anyway, we grew up in a unique situation. Uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to have a service, and it'll be our last service of the year, and I just think really important for our family to come together. And then on the 1st, January 1st, which is New Year's Day, was a Sunday, and we're gonna gather. And I just, the Lord is already preparing something in my heart for that service that I'm just excited about. I feel like we're about to hit a new expression and we've got to push, amen? We've gotta push. And this is kind of preparing us for that push. But in Acts chapter two, go to verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, when you see the word prayers in Greek, it's always attached to worship. If you click on it in the Strongs, it literally says prayer and worship, all right? So anytime you see, because people are always like, where is worship that, we, that we're aware of in the New Testament besides Acts 16? It's, it's everywhere you see prayer. So to them, there wasn't like prayer meetings and worship meetings. All of it was unto the Lord, Amen. So they were, breaking and they were breaking bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. How many believed all? Not some, but to all of those who believed. They had all things in common. There was no this church and that church. All things were in common. And it says, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Not just, not just within their small group, but there was not one person that had, a, that had a need among them. And it says that they attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So I want you to write this down. The apostles doctrine, fellowship or the breaking of bread, prayer and worship. And then just put dash always together. They were always together. Day by day, they attended the temple. There was radical generosity. And this, these five things, Produce miracles, signs, and wonders, and not just a couple of salvations, but daily salvations, all right? The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer and worship, day by day attending the temple and radical generosity. Now go to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'm gonna read just, um, I'm gonna read the first part in the Passion, but everyone turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to see something. Go to, go to verse 17. In the passion, they call this the Lord's table. Because I want you to see that there's an expression of the church that I think as the years have gone on, we've gotten away from. And we've made home groups and family groups and small groups, whatever we call it today in the West, we've made it kind of a side issue. It's another program. It's another thing we do at church. But when you, when you actually begin to read the scriptures, like I'm, I'm crying out to the Lord, Lord, there's got to be a different expression than what we're experiencing in the earth today. And I'm reading Acts 2 and the Lord's like, it's there, just read it. Like it's, it's all in the scriptures. They went house to house. They were radically generous. They ate together. They broke bread together. They went to the temple every day. They prayed and they worshiped and there was miracles, signs and wonders and salvation every single time. And they gathered around the apostles' doctrine, not, not in the temple, but they gathered around the apostles' doctrine in their homes. And so you get to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, and Paul is now dealing with how they gather. Like this is, this would be like him coming and he, and he takes, he's, he's assessing what we're doing at Risen Nation or he's assessing what they're doing in Corinth and they're saying, and, he, and he's giving them feedback on every time they gather. And there's nothing, not one thing about Sunday morning gathering only, right? Or really at all, to be honest with you. This was a daily occurrence that they lived together, they broke bread together, they, they sat at the Lord's table together, and they hid from persecution together, and they didn't lack on evangelism. People were getting saved every single day, all right? So you go to verse 17, and it says, in this is 1 Corinthians 11, this is the passion. Now on this next matter, I wish I could commend you, but I can't. He's bringing correction. Because you meet together as a church family, it is when you meet together as a church family, it is doing more harm than good. The ESV says when you gather as a church. Now I want you to listen. When they gather as a church, now listen how they gather. I've been told many times that when you meet as a congregation, ESV says when you go house to house, divisions and cliques emerge 
And to some extent, this doesn't surprise me, differences of opinions are unavoidable, yet they will reveal which ones among you are truly God's approval. That's what I was just talking about. Verse 20, when, you, when all of your house churches gather as one church family, I want you to see the model. When all the houses come together as one, you are not really properly celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says, for when it comes time to eat, some gobble down their food before anything is given to others. One is left hungry while the others become drunk. Do you all have, don't you all have homes that you can go and eat in? Do you realize that you're showing a superior attitude by humiliating those who have nothing? Are you trying to show contempt for God's beloved church? How shall I address you appropriately? If you are looking for my approval, you will not find it. If I, I have handed down to you what came to me by direct revelation from the Lord himself. In other words, the Lord gave direct insight and revelation to Paul on what the church was to look like and how it was to operate. That same night when he was handed over, he took bread, he gave thanks, he distributed it to the disciples and said, take, eat, and fill. It, it is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembering me. We've learned here that's not like I forgot about Jesus and I got to recall my memory of him. That word remember in Greek is taking something that was dismembered. And we, as the members of the body of Christ, every time we gather, we remember him together again, right? We are remembering God. When we gather in rooms like this on Sunday, we are literally saying it is our declaration, our prophetic act by being inside of this room as we are remembering you. Amen? Does that make, do you get that? Okay, so it goes on and it says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the story, wow, proclaiming our Lord's death until he comes. For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in the wrong spirit will be guilty of dishonoring the body and the blood of the Lord. So let each person evaluate his own attitude. And only then eat the bread and drink the cup for continually eating and drinking with the wrong spirit will bring judgment upon yourself by not recognizing the body. This is insensitive and is why, listen, it's why many of you are weak, chronically ill, and even some dying. If we have examined ourselves, we should not be judged, but we are judged. It is the Lord's training so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my fellow believers, when you assemble as one to share a meal, show respect for one another and wait for all to be served. He's dealing with people that had more money than others. And so they would just eat and they wouldn't wait for the poor to come in. It goes in, in 34, verse 34. If you are that hungry, eat at your own home first so that when you gather together, you will not bring judgment upon yourself. When I come to you, I will answer the other questions you have asked me in the letter. This is really important. Their lack of doing, the, doing it according to the order and the operation in which God intended caused many to be weak, sick, frail, even dying. How many of you want to see more miracles, signs, and wonders? How many of you don't, like, I don't, I don't want my family to be sick anymore. I know it's a cold or whatever it is, but I'm, I'm tired of it. Every time my kids are like, you know, you know your kids and especially mine when they're crazy and wild and then they just sit on the couch all day and they're, I, I've been thinking to myself, you know, you pray and you pray and you don't see, you don't see things happen that you want to see happen. And, and how many of you know that it's never, it's never on God's part. 
right? If Jesus walked into my house, everyone would be healed in this very moment right now. If Jesus walked in here, every single person in this room, not 20%, but every single person in this room would be healed. And my weakness or my lack of understanding or my lack of faith has nothing to do with God, right? So I can't build uh, doctrine and theology based on what, what I'm experiencing when the scriptures say, lay your hands on the sick and the sick will recover, and so we, we stir it up. We think if we you know, pray longer, yell louder, if we fast for 58 years, that maybe, maybe like we'll have this exchange with God as if we can do anything outside of grace. As if, like it says in Galatians, you who were saved by grace, who has, who has lied to you that you're now going back to works? Right? That what started so easy and everything was so amazing and the sky was bluer and the grass was greener. Now all of a sudden you're having to work again to make something work and make sense. This is not the gospel. Right? So I get into these mindsets where I'm like, okay, I prayed for this person. I didn't see it happen. So I'm going to go on a 90 day fast. Because maybe my, my like good behavior and making my flesh suffer, somehow that'll move God to like me more and say, you can do it now. Although the scripture said that I've been given all things pertaining to life and to godliness, right? And so we got to get out of this exchange mentality. Like, God, I'm going to give you this and you're going to give me this. No, he said, I gave you my son. What else do you want from me? I mean, I shed my own blood, I died on a tree, I rose from the dead, and then just to top it off, I put myself through my spirit inside of you. What more can you do for me that'll make me go, okay, even though he has the Holy Spirit, I think he needs a little bit more. Right? So there, there's got to be more to this. And I don't know, like, if you, anyone ever traveled to a third world country and been on a missions trip, have you ever seen how easy miracles flow? Right, I remember being in, I mean, places like Brazil. We were in the Dominican Republic doing a power and love. I had ne I've never till today seen miracles like I saw in the Dominican. We had a guy walk into a bus at a bus stop. The bus is full. He convinced the person, let me preach the gospel on the mic. And the guy's like, you have two minutes. This, this guy had never done preach the gospel publicly. You remember this? And he, he just starts fumbling. Blake was there. He starts fumbling his way through the gospel. He asks, how many of you want to receive Jesus in two minutes? And everybody in the bus raised their hand. Like this is beyond human mixture. Like you, you didn't do a good job preaching. Right? Like today we, we bow your head, close your eyes. We have a whole formula, Right? We, 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 we don't, we, we teach people, here's what you say here, here's what you say here. But, but what I'm looking for is the power of God to rest upon me in such a way that regardless of what I say or how I do it, I don't come to you with words of wisdom and amazing speech, but in the demonstration of power and his spirit. So I sometimes am frustrated throughout the week because I'm like, church was good, sweet. We jumped and sang. But the person that came up in the wheelchair is still in the wheelchair. And sometimes I want to cuss, and I don't. I hold those horrible thoughts down. But it makes me angry because there's something that isn't working, and you have to identify a problem to be able to fix it. We can't just think, oh, we've got it together. No, we don't. And I'm not just talking again. Don't, don't do this. Stay out of this. You're amazing. I'm talking about me. Let me let's talk about me. Okay? But I, I'm I'm tired of reading the scriptures and going, 
All right, Jesus waited four days and just so he could just expose his glory. He said, he stinketh, Lazarus smells. He says, move the stone. He would get frustrated with his disciples on, bring her to me. How long do I have to be with you? I mean, they only had three years. It's been 2,000 years of the church of I will not leave you as orphans, but I will be with you. My father and I, we're gonna make our home inside of you. We've had him for 2,000 years and miracles are just slowly decreasing and we're happy with our big churches. I have no idea what they're doing today, no idea what they're doing today. Could it be, could it be that we're a little bit out of order and many among us are weak and sick because we just, you belong here. No, you don't. You belong to him. And I am convinced, I'm convinced, I am absolutely convinced that if we can create it's not even a model. If we could just get back to the scriptures. It's not some strategy. We need to get like our pastors, leaders, teachers, all of us need to get free from our strategies and get back to outrageous, abandoned love for the Lord that says, could you imagine if we gathered their tithe, that tithe and this offering, and then we just said, who has a need? Church is struggling. There's no, like, which church is helping another church? We, it's very rare. If we got a check in the mail from another church, I'd be like, are you serious? I wouldn't know their name. I wouldn't know their family. I wouldn't know their pastor. Yet we are called the body of Christ. Could something need to change it? Just a little bit. There's an expression that's not new. It's ancient. It's an ancient path. And so, I don't, I don't really, I'm, I'm already just, help me, Jesus. But I, I want you to see what I believe we're going into and what I want to talk about specifically on the first is things that I believe the Lord is asking us to step out on as a community. And I'm going to tell you where it's going to start. It's going to start in the homes. We're changing, we're, we're not, we're, we're really finalizing membership and we're going to make it very clear and it's going to be amazing and easy. But, but one requirement we will have is that if you are called here, you will be a part of a family group. And not because you have to be in a small group, but because the, the houses are the church. What this, this is not church. This is where we come together in the temple to celebrate the Lord. And we come here and we have miracles, signs, and wonders break out. And, and this really isn't about always getting teaching. This is about us coming and ministering to God. And then you gather around the apostles' doctrine in all of the homes. That's the church. There's no such thing in scripture as a senior pastor. Now, I know it's my title, but maybe, maybe we change things because it's not there. Pastors that are listening to me now are turning it off. They're turning it off. <laughs> They like the title, but, but your title, you might feel good, but people are sick and weak among you because we're out of order. The scriptures say apostles, prophets, and the apostles, we don't even go there because we don't know what it means. They're usually narcissists. I guarantee you, if you met an apostle, they would be a person that is the lowest, most humble. They've allowed people to walk over them. They've been rejected, lonely, real apostles that actually set a foundation, but the church is not built on the foundation of the senior pastors and the associate. It's upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophet. 
but that's almost become like it's not relevant language. No, your language is not relevant. This is the Bible. It stays relevant, right? But apostles, apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds, shepherds, evangelists, right? And so what we're doing, we, we currently are training and every Wednesday night, we're starting to train and we're turning a bunch of people into shepherds because it's the model of the scriptures, And I believe what's gonna happen inside of the homes, inside of our family groups, that is not gonna be a side issue is we're gonna start seeing the most miraculous healing that when we're breaking bread together, like the the not, there's no hype in it. We are actually gathering as a family. It is impossible for me to disciple 400 people behind a pulpit. This is why many are offended because they hear one voice. I can't disciple 400 people, but you could disciple 20. Right? Okay. So we're going to get more into, uh, into how I believe God is asking us to restructure and get back. But I want you to write this down. I believe God is moving us from organizations with leaders to families with fathers and mothers. From organizations with leaders to families with fathers and mothers. And I've been in church way too long to know and to realize that if you're in it long enough, you'll realize there's outside of us doing a couple of Sean Day's claps and songs, we're really no different than a business in the world. Right? We, we, you know, you function very similar to a business. Now I know, you know, the disciples said how what, we need to raise up men that'll handle this business, but, but there's a difference adopting a a culture and an understanding of the world and what we actually see in the scriptures. Amen? But he's moving us from organizations with leaders to families with fathers and mothers. We lack today a fathering spirit. Now, I'm not just talking about fathers, but I am going off 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17. You've heard it so many times. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ... If you look up the word instructors, it's boy leaders. Though you have tens and thousands of boy leaders in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. I'm not talking about male or female. I need you to hear this. I'm talking about a spirit. Everyone say a spirit. It's a spirit that covers, protects, guides, it gathers, it encourages, and corrects. Yet everything they do comes from a heart posture that says, those I protect and guide are more important to me than my own life. Right? That's, that's the fathering spirit. The first time you hear of worship is in Genesis 22, and it's all around sacrifice. But if you go even deeper than sacrifice, he came to a father and said, give me your son. Why? Why did he ask Abraham for his son? Because he knew it would be an easier for Abraham to say, take me. That's easy. But usually as a parent, and if you're a parent, you understand this, how many of you as a parent would give your life for your children? There's no question. It's not even, uh, it, it's, there's not even a question. When my kids are sick, I'm always like, the, the thought is if I could go into their little body and take it on myself, I would, right? This is the understanding of God as a father. He came and became so that you could become like him, right? But this, this whole fathering mindset that says, What's most important to me is my, is my child. So the Lord says, give me what you love more than yourself. 
Then consider what God did. God the Father, when he thought of what is most important to me, I'm gonna send my son, right? But that spirit, that fathering spirit, that's not just telling, talking to people like this. That's not just raising up a bunch of good leaders and we call them mentors and all kinds of stuff that's not in the Bible. But we need fathers. When my grandmother, and again, I want you to see that it's not male or female. My grandmother, my Tato, when she, the last Christmas, and I feel like sometimes grandmas are just this way. Like they know this is gonna be my last Christmas, especially when they know the Lord. They're like, just leave me alone. I'll be fine. This is, and I remember it was like a Jacob moment sitting with her sons. Remember this? And it was a Christmas. All the grandkids had to get out of the room. She sat at this table at the head, this matriarch. And she put all the sons in the order she wanted them in and daughter, two daughters around the table. And she gave them each commands and blessings and all kinds of stuff in our culture, sometimes little curses. And, and, and in her old age, it's true. Yeah. And uh, we just, we love Tata. We have a lot of patience for Tata. But, but when Tata was alive, the family gathered around Tata, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like the matriarch, the patriarch, when they're there, they're like glue for the family. When she passed, it's been hard to get the whole family to come together again. Everyone just kind of goes and does their own thing. This is what the lack of fathers and mothers does in the church, is when fathers and mothers aren't present, people scatter, sheep without a shepherd, right? They just go into their own things, but... You know, there's something about like when my dad is out of town traveling, of course we go and see my mom and we surround her. But when Bubba's home, we gather and we feast. That's called a fathering spirit. It's where your kids, it's where your children, it's where you desire to gather around something. And I believe that God is turning senior pastors into fathers, senior pastors into mothers. He's turning leaders and he's putting father, a fathering and a mothering spirit that's gonna begin to gather families. Because I'm telling you, if this church and that church and that church are gonna become one church, we've actually gotta become a family. Which is, I'm not, I, I'm not in a, you know, like there's this, this thing in the, of like brothers always compete. Not here. My older brother serves under me in a church. When have you seen that before? You know why? It's not because we're awesome. It's because we're under a fathering spirit that would sit with us and he would weep. He would weep. I remember one time we're sitting at a, at a, at a, a eating breakfast at a table and he's weeping and he's saying, don't do it the way your, my brothers and I did it. Promise me you'll work together. Promise me you'll do it together. And we made a covenant at the table because a father was among us that I don't know if we would have made if the father wasn't among us right? We've got to have this spirit in the church. And I believe it's going to start gathering. And it's not so we can have guys that's like, oh, that's the guy. That's our leader. Here's what fathers do. They sacrifice so no one else in the family has to. Right? Like if, if, if someone's breaking into my house, I don't throw my kid at it. I don't tell William, go get your plastic bat and start swinging. I tell them, go find a room, and the father steps forward. And I find my weapon in Texas. God bless Texas. Two of them. Don't come into my house with my kids and my wife. I will kill you. I know Dan Moeller hugs them, kisses them. 
<laughs> you guys ever heard that story? It's unbelievable. Some guy comes in with a knife. He just gives him a hug. And he's like, hey, buddy. I'm like, you know, I don't, I just, sorry. I'm not saying, hey, buddy. There's no buddy because my kids are in the other room. Dan, that's fine, but I'm not Dan, and I've accepted that. I tried to be Dan for a long time and just condemn myself over and over and over. I've told you this story. Dan said, you know, I've never used an alarm clock. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, the Lord just wakes me up every morning and strokes his hair or something. And I'm like, I tried it, and I was late to everything, everything. And then I just was condemned for like three and a half months. And so then I did the loudest alarm clock, and I'm like, why, God? But anyway... A, a fathering spirit, it's, this is a fathering spirit. Anyone ever gone to New York City or any busy, like anywhere busy and your kids are everywhere and you've Dallas, right? And you've got like, you got kids everywhere and we make fun of the parents with leashes. But honestly, like as I'm getting older and I have more kids, I would love to just have them all in one place. They can swore, you know, go everywhere, but I can just yank them back. Like, when I was single, I'd be like, I'm never going to be that parent, ever. I was always the guy that's like, they're never going to sleep in my bed. They're going to give me my space, my time. None of it happened. None of it happened. If you are uh, single in here, just don't have expectations and you'll never be ready. Okay? You not, you're not. Like, your finances will never be ready. It'll always be more than you think. The amount of toilet paper, the amount of food, the amount that Ellie eats, I can't, I'll, I don't know if I'll ever keep up with it. Okay, so you just kind of throw everything out the window and you'd find a leash, right? And so, but you know, that fathering spirit is one that says, you can't just relax, right? Like I, I'm not, I don't have kids that can drive yet, but I go to the pastor Tanner and Jenny and I'm like, okay, Tanner, I know you don't worry about anything, but Jenny, <laughs> let's talk. What do, what do you do when your kid is driving? How do you sleep at night? <laughs> or in college. <laughs> Chip came up to me one week and he was packing his daughter up and I knew he was and all he did was walk up and he just started crying. That's a father. That's a father, right? True girl dad right there. But you know, like, I can't just, I can't enjoy the sights when my kids are with me because all I'm doing is, no, Benji, stop it. No, Stop. They asked in Children's Church one time to Ellie, what are the, and she was really young, they said, what are the two words your, your dad says the most to you? I said, oh no. <laughs> so I'm the pastor, you know what I'm saying? Said, I love you, and I was like, and then stop it. And, <laughs> and it's true, it's 100% the truth. But I don't say stop it because I'm mad at her, but it's all to protect my children. You guys get it? That was a really long rabbit trail to explain. If you're a parent or you're single, if you're single, you're gonna understand, but but there's something about all your kids are in bed. Houses put together. Not, it's not exactly put together. But everyone's alive, fed. There's no poop in any diaper, at least we hope not. And you can breathe because, not because for some, sometimes you're like, wow, I have a second to think to myself, but but there's something about a father going and looking in their room, seeing your kids safe and comfortable, healthy, strong. And I don't think that it's something that you can experience, obviously, until you have kids. 
But that fathering spirit needs to move just from our natural families to our spiritual families. Uh, it, it needs to move from, because what we have is we've got a bunch of people talking to you. We've got a bunch of pastors, senior this, senior that, big head honcho this, most influence this, and we have, we have substituted influence. We've substituted family for influence. And we're more interested in being on a big stage than building families. But many are sick among us because we refuse to gather around the Lord's table and make it the most important thing we do. We need seated fathers, amen? And again, this goes for mothers too. If anything, my wife is way more intense than I am with the kids and she does way more than I do 100% of the time. Okay, I want you guys to open your Bibles to Genesis 24. I just want to take you through a story. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through all of it today. Some of you have heard this, of those that have been in our Levite classes. If you have, just, just roll with me and, and just minister it with me. But as a church, I just want to read this to you as you get to Genesis 24. As a church... The truth is, is we really don't operate like a family. And when we don't operate like a family, listen closely, we will inevitably adopt a worldly culture that looks more like a business rather than the church God intended it to be. We will measure everything. Tell me if you, if you know this to be true or not. We will measure everything we do based on production, numbers, how many are here, how many are gone, how much are we bringing in, and it's so subtle and it's seductive, right? And you determine, you determine success by production and it can be all devoid of affection, right? This will inevitably lead to Revelation chapter two. There's no way around it. When production is first before affection, this will inevitably lead to Revelation chapter two, a church that is busy with good things yet has left her first love. Busy with good things, but yet has left her first love. So then you get to Genesis 24, and I want you to keep this in mind as I just, as I read through some of this, and I would encourage you, write down, I want you to read Genesis 24 and just go through all the way of chapter 35. I want you to read all of it, because you really get the whole story when you read the whole thing, but I'm just going to jump around for the sake of time, okay? So just to scan, you get to verse 1. How many of you ever read this story? Abraham wants a son for Isaac. But Abraham wants his oldest servant to go back to the homeland, to where he's from, to find a wife. Abraham refused to have a son marry the culture he was in. He wanted, he wanted the original culture. I love it. Like, there's so much in this that we can dissect, but we don't have time. But you get to about verse 50. Let's get to 50. And at this point, the oldest servant of, of Abraham had found this this young woman, this beautiful woman named Rebecca, he had asked the Lord, Lord, if this is Isaac's wife, do this, do this, do this. God does all of it. God makes it happen. And now you get to, to 50, and he had just finished basically asking Laban and Bethuel, which was Bethuel is Rebecca's father, and Laban is her brother, for her hand. You get to verse 50, and it says, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. 
and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he gave to her brother and her mother. I want you to really, we're gonna slow down, we're gonna take our time through this. But really the, what I want you to see in this is Bethuel is her father. If, if you're making notes, I, I did this because it helped me. Anyone ever seen like a family, make your own family tree. Do it really quick on your notes. Put Bethuel and then underneath Bethuel, put Laban and Rebecca. Laban and Rebecca are brother and sister. Bethuel is father. We don't really know the mother's name, but you've got Bethuel and his wife. Then you've got Rebecca and you've got Laban. I want you to see how Bethuel is not present. All right, and today as you hear this, please don't just think that I'm talking to leaders and pastors. If, if, you're not, if you're not a father or a mother, one day you will be, and if you never become a father and mother, I guarantee you that you have people in your life, you have coworkers, you have friends, and it could be that one conversation with that one person. And really what we're talking about is discipleship. We're talking about actually walking with people and seeing them grow into the image of the Lord, all right? So this applies to every single person in this room, but Bethuel is not a present father and it causes Laban to step inappropriately into a position that is not for him. And I want you to see the generational, what the curse that goes on from generation to generation because Bethuel is just, you don't really hear about this man, all right? So this is the only time we hear from him in verse 50 is that, okay, you're blessed. You're, you can have my daughter and that's it. Now you get to 52, and the servant begins to bless them, but who does he give these gifts to? Her mother and her brother. Where's dad? Not dad, but mom and brother get the gifts from the oldest servant, which implies he's not there. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Here it is again. Her brother and her mother said, not dad, but her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. So they're already trying to manipulate what God wanted to do. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. All right? Now, I don't know about you. Well, let me finish. Verse 60, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, this is mom and brother blessing Rebecca saying, our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. This is Laban is telling his, he's blessing his sister. Now, I don't know about you, but when, uh, when Harry entered our family, I didn't give Harry my blessing. Kossi actually didn't like Harry at all when he first came around, okay? They've reconciled. Still, it's still debatable. But I didn't, I didn't say, hey, Harry, come ask me for my sister's hand. My dad would have been like, what do you think you're doing? Get out of my office, <laughs> right? I mean, I'll never forget when Harry came to the house to ask my dad. We were all like, oh, and we got like, we're like trying to look in the room and <laughs> what is that noise? It was, and my dad is so intense. He's like, I don't know in-laws. I don't know, I'm not a father-in-law, I'm a father. And like really intense with Harry Harry's just like, yes, sir, you know? But I didn't do their wedding. I mean, I, I danced, but I didn't do the wedding. 
I didn't bless them. I didn't give my approval. These are roles of a father, right? Like it's the father that should be trying to go, don't leave. Do you have to, right? It's, it's a father and a mother that are going, why don't you stay a little bit longer? Don't go move in with him. Stay, in a, stay a little bit longer, right? But where's Bethuel? You don't see Bethuel doing any of these things, but mother and brother. And we know Jacob is being the schemer, but I want you to see this is way before him. A lot of manipulation in the in-laws in this story. Okay, so now, now 25, go to, go to chapter 25. I'm gonna start in verse 19. He says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, and Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. And they were from a city called Padan Aram. It's important, Padan Aram. I want you to remember the name of that city. The sister of Laban, he took her and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Now I want you to start to see this pattern of barrenness, of insecurity, all right? So Bethuel, the not present father, has a daughter and her daughter's name is Rebekah and Rebekah is barren. And the Lord granted, listen, his prayer and Rebekah, Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Right? So she's having a struggle happening in her stomach. And she goes to the Lord and she's saying, well, Lord, why me? Why is this happening to me? So she went and remember, Rebecca's innocent. Rebecca had nothing to do with the manipulation of Laban and her brother and her mother. But why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. To the one, to one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. After, afterward, his brother came out and his hand was holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, all right? So Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and from the time that she has babies in her womb, they're divided, okay? I want you to start seeing there's something generational that is continually passed. Then you get to chapter 27. Jump to verse 41, chapter 27. I wanna get through this quick. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. You guys know the story, right? Esau was really hungry, sold his birthright for some lentil soup. I've had lentil soup. It is not that good to sell your birthright. Okay. He sells his birthright and it's manipulated. And again, it's, it's his mother that's manipulating him here. And the days of the morning of mourning, my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau is like talking to himself. I'm going to kill this kid. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. But if you read the story, Jacob wasn't the schemer. His mother was. All right. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, what would any normal mom do in this situation? She'd gather both of her boys. She'd say, you ain't killing anybody or I'm gonna spank you. Make up right now. But what does this scheming mother do? She goes behind Esau's back 
and make sure that Jacob knows your brother's coming for you. This is as dysfunctional. I mean, you think your family's dysfunctional. I want you to see how we just read this story. But where's, where's Bethuel? Right? Where, so generationally, he's not present. Laban is manipulative because he doesn't have a present father. Now it's jumping on Rebecca. Rebecca's like, listen, your brother's about to kill you. So we're gonna scheme this whole thing. All right, listen to what she does. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban. Oh, that's a good place to go. Go back to my brother, who's also a nut and manipulative. Go back to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what, he, what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I go through this? And why should I lose you both in one day? Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life. So now listen, listen to what she's doing here. She goes to the sun. She says, go back to hometown. Go back to Laban. Find yourself a wife. Your brother's trying to kill you. So then wife, Rebecca, she gets into Isaac's ear. Says to Isaac, I mean, this is like Jezebel all, all throughout the story. I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. And if Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? Well, that's not the truth. That's not why she's sending him. Are you with me? She's sending him because she found out that Esau wants to kill Jacob, but now she's making it about, I want him to go marry someone from my own, my own town, which, which potentially was the worst thing. Now God works all things together for good, but Laban probably wasn't the place to find a wife. All right? Then you get to verse or chapter 28. You guys sticking with me? Verse one, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife. Now Isaac thinks that this is the first time he's telling his boy this. Even though it's like, they're both, they're both lying. They're both scheming. Yeah, mom already told me. And Isaac's taking his place as a father. And he says, he blessed him, directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram. Go back to your in-law's town to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Now you're gonna find out Bethuel, nowhere to be present. And take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Then you get to, let's jump, let's jump to 30. I just want you to see one, one part really quick in here. Now you guys know the story in chapter 29 Laban is still manipulative. He's still a huge problem. Isaac or Jacob is like, I want your daughter, Rachel. But Rachel was the youngest. Anyone ever seen Veggie Tales? Anyone ever read the Bible? <laughs> Rachel's the youngest, but Leah's the oldest. But poor Leah's got a dim eye. Leah's not the attractive one. And so what does, what does awesome dad do? He makes his daughter believe the only way anyone will love you is if I trick him. Right? great dad. So he schemes his whole way into this. Now there's this really important part that, that goes on in chapter 29. I don't have time to read it where Jacob finds Laban says, I want to marry Rachel. What do I do? And he serves him for seven years for Rachel. And there's one phrase in there in chapter 29 that says it seemed but a few days because of his love for her. So I want you to see something that's birthed in affection and then you find, then you get to Leah, okay? 
in chapter 30. Now, Leah is dealing with probably the torment of my father tricked this guy into marrying me as well. Awesome. And she starts now working for love. She starts now trying to put on the production and the show to get into the exchange theology that we have in church today of if I do this, God will like me. If I do this, God will make me anointed. If I do this, I will be powerful in the kingdom. But Jacob didn't work for Leah. Jacob worked for Rachel and his work was as a few days because of how he loved her. So I want you to start to see there's this production mindset and there's this affection mindset. And it's all, it's all in the generational line. So you get to chapter 30 and verse 20. Then Leah, she had just conceived her sixth son to Jacob. Now, during this whole time, Rachel also barren. Why? Because the generational curse that flows in this whole family of dysfunction, right? Rachel's barren, Leah's barren, but Leah, God answers Isaac's prayer, Jacob's prayer, baby, okay? Then you go on. God has endowed me with good endowment. This is Leah talking, sixth boy. Now my husband will honor me because I have bore him six sons. Now he'll love me because I gave him something to love me with. Very unhealthy. Agreed? So now now jump to chapter 35. So now in between there, Rachel finally gives birth. She gives birth to Joseph. Then you have Benjamin in chapter 35. So all in all, Jacob has 12 sons. Six from Leah, four from handmaidens, kind of a weird thing. And then two with the one he loved, all right? So you got, you got 10. I did math. That was good. I'm, I, just, I just calculated six plus four. Wow. We're growing here. 10. 10 from work, production. Maybe he'll love me. Even Rachel. I'm not giving him something. Go into the handmaiden. No, that's not how it works, Rachel. 10 sons, keep, remember this, 10 sons, all from work, and then you've got two from affection, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Rachel, again, she, this sweet lady doesn't know any better, but Jacob's Rachel is the one that he loves. But even Rachel has this mindset of, I'm gonna take what's on me and I'm gonna pass it to the next generation. And you see it, I've, I've read this before. And right before this happens, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram. Important. Jacob now has, has 11 sons. He's about to give, Rachel's about to give birth to his 12th baby. Promise is upon him and he, God brings him back to the very place of the dysfunctional family. And it's in, listen, it's in Padan Aram that God blessed him and God said, your name is Jacob no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. He did it in Padan Aram. He brings Jacob back to where all the dysfunction happens, where there's a family that lacks a father and God makes him a father of a whole nation in that same place. Right? And then you go on to verse 16. Then he journeyed from Bethel and when they were still some distance from Ifrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. 
but his father, but his father, but his father called him Benjamin. All right, so I want you to get this picture. Benoni, son of sorrow. Rachel's trying to pass what's on her to the next generation. Finally, in the same city, he has a name change. And God goes where there was no father, where you have dysfunction in a family. Now, what, what, what Bethuel produced is he produced barrenness, insecurity, manipulation, easily manipulated, weariness, and sorrow. That's what came from the line of Bethuel that you find on Laban, Rebekah, uh, Rachel, and Leah, right? Now, now, Jacob shows up to the scene. Now, Rachel, or Jacob, he had a father, and Isaac had a father. So much that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's what God does. I'm gonna bring you back to the in-law's land and we're gonna change your name and I'm gonna bring a father in the midst of this story. And a father stands in the middle. Rachel dies. He said, his name ain't Ben-Oni. It's Benjamin. And he changes the trajectory. You watch a whole generational curse broken because a father stood in the middle and said, no, his name isn't Ben-Oni. His name is Benjamin, Right? I believe, listen, that the absence of a father fueled the manipulation in Laban and Leah is never appropriately identified because of her father. Her father reinforces her insecurity, like I said before, by causing her to believe that the only way a man will ever love you is if I trick him. Leah had to think he never wanted me because, I've seen, because of what I've seen in my father or the lack thereof. And I'm going to spend my life working for affection rather than working from it. I want you to start seeing the church and what I'm saying. There's so many in this generation that have never felt accepted, never felt loved, have never felt undergirded. And it's caused them to have a wrong perspective of God because they lack fathers with God's heart. And the perspective has become in the church predominantly produce and then you'll be accepted. Have the most followers on Instagram and then you'll be accepted. Get the, get the biggest number. Maybe if I have six sons, he'll love me. You know, I, I was thinking about my parents. Costi was really bad in school. I was great. Costi was, you know, it was, there's just a lot of questions, you know. I remember one time. <laughs> He did a thing at school, and, um, and I would always hear about it after, right? But my dad was called into the office, right? And my dad doesn't play. I mean, you've heard him, he doesn't play. Now, you would expect him to just come in and just smack his son, right? But, but he comes in, and what cost? Costi was 100% the one that was wrong. Let's just be honest. He, he did something and this girl and her dad are in there and Costi and my dad are in there. And, and my dad's just always like WWE at any point. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> pastor, not pastor. He's a father first, right? Now, even knowing that Costi was wrong, this dad begins to like get mouthy with, with my brother. Now, I think any father understands this. Your son is wrong, but my dad's still, you know, and Costi's bigger than my dad. My dad, my little dad. Don't talk to my son like that. And he starts like, you know, getting in the guy's face. In the principal's office, Pastor William Senior, Pastor Resurrection Life Center Church in Tustin, California. And he's, and he is not playing. And there's nothing, there's nothing that Costi could have done that would have caused him to be like, yeah, go ahead and punch my son in the face. Yeah, go for it. 
Nothing. I mean, I mean, I remember, and that's a silly example, but, but there's something about like, I can get, say anything I want to my brother because he's my brother. But if you say something to my brother, you and I are going to have a problem. And it's unfair. It doesn't make sense because we're family. There's something about family that you can do this a hundred times to me, but if I see someone hitting you, I'm still going to jump in. Right? Because there's, there's something deeper than just a friendship, than just a side hug cordial thing. Right? Growing up, I didn't get good grades. My dad one time saw me and said, how about a C? Just a C. <laughs> what you're experiencing here is called the grace of God. Right? But, but never one time did my approval from my parents. Now, just, I just were blessed to have amazing parents. If I came home with a 4.0, he'd have been like, that's great. But if I came home with the, with the 3.0 and just passed, he still would have been like, you're incredible. Now, I know that that's not the case for everybody, but let me tell you what a fathering spirit is like, is that there's nothing I could perform. There's nothing I could do to make him like me more. There's no, I, I mean, uh, now I am, I am like a big, big advocate of, I don't like participation trophies, okay? I just don't. I, if my son didn't give us all, don't give him a trophy. I know that you don't like that, but that's fine. Maybe it's because we're Arabs. Like he wasn't the fastest runner. The winner got the prize. That's in the Bible. I mean, it's, he came in last. Let him learn. You didn't win. Now try again. Work harder and try again. Try again. Not, wow, you, everyone's winners. No, they're not. In, in the mouth, listen, <laughs> this is a very bad movie, and I don't, ex- and I don't uh, endorse watching it, but in the great words of Ricky Bobby, if you're second, you're last. <laughs> we'll lose some people for that. Anyway, um, I, listen. I've only watched it like 130 times. BC, BC. I think it. I think that's true. I don't know. Um, but you know, like if William, so far in his life, is not exactly like the most athletic kid in the world, right? And so Cal is very athletic and and much faster than my son. Um, William, if you're watching, you're the fastest kid alive. You're the fastest kid I know. He's the most athletic kid I know. And, and uh, you know, like, he's long and kind of gangly and I don't know if that's even a word. Uh, like, he's, he's not coordinated. And I'm like, William, I was the best. I, I, I need you to be the fastest, right? But you know what? Truly, maybe when he's at the football game, I'm like, um, he, him and Cal played flag football and it was, it was a sight to behold. Let me just say, and it was frustrating as a parent. You're like, wow, maybe we shouldn't have put him in football this quickly. Um, but I'll tell you, it doesn't matter if he won, lost, if he came in first, second, third, fourth, seventh. That's my boy. And I'm still gonna tell him, you're, the most incre- you're literally the most incredible kid I know. And then we go to other parents and we're like, let me tell you about my kid. Let me tell you what he did. And every kid is special and has some special talent. And parents, you know, they, they get in, one parent's telling you about their kid and you're like, yeah, my kid, he, he jumped over the house the other day. And I'm like, no, he didn't. He didn't, he didn't jump over the house. 
But there's this pride, there's this pride in like, my kid is the fastest kid alive. There's just, and, and he's not, and he's not even close. But as a parent, there's something about no matter what William does or doesn't do. He, my Ellie, William, especially Benji, they don't really add anything in our household except joy. And, but then it's the mess. And I mean, they, they actually make day to day a lot of work. And you know what, like I live my life for is just to be with them, right? Because they were born in affection between a wife and a husband, right? But we have a generation that is weary, weary, thinking they need influence for love because we lack seated fathers. And, and I don't know about you, like we need celebrity Christianity and leadership to just die by the wayside. My kids are not starstruck when I come home. They don't ask for a picture with me. I, I'm doing good for them to like look at me when I come home. Benji's still very excited. He's still at that age. William's like, what's up, Bubba? I'm like, what happened to you? I mean, like I come home from a three-day trip. I'm like, hello. And I've even got a toy for them and everything. Benji's still screaming, running at me and my, you know, silly dog, but... But you know what? They may not like be starstruck when they see me, but when they're scared, they come to me. When they need to be encouraged, they come to me. When, they, when someone is, is close that they're unsure about, they're not grabbing somebody else's leg, they're grabbing mine. And there's something, and if, and if you, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, you start getting to that like six, seven month range and your kid starts becoming very aware of you and strangers and the difference. And that first time that you hand them to somebody and they start screaming and you're like, yeah, I give them back. And they reach for you. You're like, I'm so sorry. He's fussy. But deep down, you're like, I love that. I love that they want me. And all they want is me to hold them, right? But we have, I want you to consider this church that's supposed to be a family. And what we've got is, is we've got pastors that are, dressing like children to win the children. They, they're, they're relevant. They got cool music. They, they look like, help us, Holy Spirit. And I'm not against them. I'm just thinking to myself, many are sick among us because we don't really, truly have a family today in church. We've got one guy who's really impressed with himself because 5,000 people came and they're just all like, wow, one day I'll be like him and I'll have a church and a ministry. And I'm gonna be depressed and discouraged and suicidal the whole way I get there. But one day, one day when I do something for God, one day when I win 100,000 people, maybe, I know what I'll do, I'll pray for 35 people a day because it makes me feel good. Be very careful. If you want a billion people to the Lord, the Lord doesn't love you any more or less. He, he, there's no difference between that pastor that never had influence but got Billy Graham saved. Billy Graham got saved through this small little church pastor, not a lot of influence. Right? Billy Graham gets millions saved and in heaven, it says that heaven rejoices over just one coming home. We have a value system in church that is completely wrong. Can I have, uh, let's just have the whole worship team, just in case, just in case. 
But listen, some theologians would say, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm coming to an end. Some theologians would say Leah's dim eye was more than a lack of beauty, but dysfunctional vision. Could Leah represent dysfunctional vision within God's house that has made us weary and the next generation want nothing to do with ministry? We call it the cost of ministry, but really it's dysfunctional vision. And it's become normal for leaders to be exhausted and depressed, their children running off into the world, and we call it the cost. My kids going off into the world is not the cost. It's me being an absent father. Dysfunctional leaders produce orphans, period. I heard this pastor, Damon, he's, Damon, Damien, he said, could our restlessness be a consequence of a substitute that we made. Production over affection. You get in bed with production, it'll give you numbers like Leah did. Come on, that's... You get in bed, listen, with production, it'll give you numbers like Leah did. But the inheritance will be weariness. Guys, I will tell you, if I can be honest and be vulnerable... The seductive spirit that is, wow, when I do this, more seats are full. When when worship sounds a certain way, when we make sure to only sing stuff that people really know, because nobody wants to sit in the room while somebody's worshiping the Lord. Uh, Whatever it is, there's, there's there's this subtle system of, Okay, we're, we're just making it. We don't have any money. We don't, blah, 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 blah. And then you start forming everything you do and you start putting things in play. Here's what we'll do. We'll shorten service. And there's all kinds of subtle things. And I can be the, I'm, I'm firsthand, firsthand to tell you that when we went into even the lifestyle season where we were in the lifestyle building and we went from 150 to 900 people overnight. 900 people overnight. And there's such a seductive thing of, of like, wow, more, wow, the, the balcony's more full. We must be doing something right. And you don't realize you're in bed. You're in bed with production. And all it produces is you think that, man, I'm gonna be on the top of the world. And I will tell you, it leads to weariness. Because then all you're thinking to yourself the next week is, will they come again? Rather than, is he gonna come? Does he, is he even approving? Of, of what we're doing. I mean, it, scholars would say at some points, 40 to 50,000 people could have been following Jesus. And at the largest point in his ministry, in John 6, he turns around, he looks at thousands of people and he doesn't tell his marketing guy, hey, take a picture from the back so you see the crowds. He yells at them, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're like, this guy's wow, was weird. And they leave. <laughs> Thousands. His disciples, it says disciples started leaving him after all they had seen, after all they experienced, they walked away. And he looks at the 12 and he says, are you gonna leave me too? At the largest point in his ministry, at the highest influence of what the world would call your prime. Come on, Come on, you gotta, you gotta captivate the momentum is what they tell you. If we were following that, what was happening in the summer, we wouldn't have just stopped doing night services because we started to get this momentum. And you know what the Lord said to me? It's gonna turn into an event, stop. Because we don't need any more events. We need families 
I need to get together with that pastor and say, hey, what are you going after? Because we're on the same street for crying out loud. And I'm just as wrong. Do we have money? Do we have people? Awesome. We're good to go. No, we're not. Because many are sick among us. People are dying because we're out of order, according to 1 Corinthians 11. Listen, you get in bed with production, it'll give you numbers like Leah did. But the inheritance will be weariness, and I know that to be true. And I want you to, this isn't just for churches. There's people in this room that are weary in your life because you're trying to produce something for God. You're trying, there's thought patterns like if, if I pray for six and a half hours rather than two and a half, maybe I'll feel better. If, if, if I fast for 40 days, some of you have never, we've, I, I mean, I've never done a 40 day fast. I would love to, but like right now where I'm at in my life is I get through like three and I'm like, I'm dead. I'm dying. I think I'm dying. I'm just not there yet. I, I want to be there. I want to do the 40. But you know that the Lord isn't like, I'm really going to anoint him when he gets to 40 days. That's not how God thinks about me. God goes, wow, he tried. He broke it with a whole bag of barbecue chips, but this kid tried. <laughs> I remember one time I fasted. All I did was 24 hours. And like, everyone's like, man, I'm like, I'm clear. And I hear the Lord. I'm like, I turn into a vegetable and I can't think about anything. And it was midnight. I had gone from mid, like I did the full 24 hours and, and midnight hit and it was 24 hours. And I went into the pantry and I was like, it's time. <laughs> and I would honestly suggest that you never do that, that you just absolutely never do that. Cause that could be really bad for your body. But I, it, I think I ate a full two bags of chips and my wife was just like, and, and, and I don't think the Lord at like 11.55 is like, five more minutes, five more minutes. And then eat all the chips that you want. We're so productive and production oriented in this exchange theology in our mindsets that people live condemned and weary, thinking I have not experienced God. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bite my tongue and just... Like, do you know that Jeremiah 29.13, it says, when you seek him with all your heart, he will be found by you. I love, I love that scripture. And I used to think that if I like, if I, I mean, I got to make it hurt. If I'm going to die to my flesh, it's got to hurt. I got to rip my clothes in half and scream God. And if I can give him all of me, I'll find him. You know what the, the actual verse means in Hebrew? If, if you actually read, I will be found. That word will be found. Those three words will be found is one word in Hebrew and it means enough. So the whole scripture changes meaning when we realize that this book was not written in English, believe it or not. That's why we have to study the word to show ourselves approved. And what we've got is we've got a bunch of boy leaders barking things at you that they don't know what they're talking about. Right? But when you actually read it, what you'll find is when you search for me with your whole heart, not every square inch. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about all that you know to give. Like maybe all you know is one hour in the morning and maybe 
maybe like the hardest thing for you is 30 minutes before you go to work, but you said, God, this is what I have. I was up till two in the morning with my kids, like wives are in this place. I was up till, I woke up 15 times with Campbell. I mean, I didn't, this, I'm talking as Kaylee. 15 times with Campbell, Lord, how do I give myself to you in the morning? I can't even keep my eyes open. And the Lord said, when you come to me, just come to me with your whole heart. And all you have to say is, Lord, this is all I have to give. And his grace comes every single time. But it says, when you come to me with your whole heart, here's what you're gonna realize is you're not just gonna find him because he's not playing hide and seek with you. I know we have songs about that, but the theology is wrong. God's not like, oh, they found me now. No, that's not how it works. Whenever we're seeking God, he, whenever we can't seem to find him, it's because he's leading us into a bedroom of intimacy. But I'll tell you that verse 29, 13 says, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found means you'll realize that I am enough. In other words, you can trust more in my relationship with you, William, than you can trust in your relationship with me. You missed it. You're missing it. When you search for him with a whole heart, here's what you're going to find out about God is that it's not my ability to get him to come into the room. Here's what I'm going to realize about God is that he's always been enough. He, he's, there's nothing that I could do to get more. He's always fully there. In Acts 17, it says that we, that we feel our way in a dark place toward the Lord. And I love it because at the very end it says, and you'll realize he's closer than you think. In other words, we're looking everywhere, but it's like, oh, wait, oh, oh. He's just been here the whole time. We alienate ourselves from him in our own minds with strongholds. There isn't a wall between you and God. And if there is, it's a figment of your imagination. So this doesn't just speak to leaders. But you get in bed with production, it'll give you numbers like Leah did, but the inheritance will be weariness. But when you find your Rachel, which is your affection for him, you'll get promise. Going on as you stand to your feet. Jacob has 12 sons. 10 from work, production, and two from affection, just two. Joseph, it's, if you keep reading, and again, I don't have time to read it all, but just, just go the whole way through like chapter 43 of the book of Genesis, okay? Promise me you'll go from 24 to like 45. Deal? 24 to, through 45. But you get, to, you get to the part about Joseph. We all know the story about Joseph, but I want you to think about something. Jacob has this love for this son that came out of affection. Jacob's love for him causes him to put a coat of many colors on his son, Joseph. It gives Joseph permission to be a dreamer. And this is what I'm, this is what I'm asking the Lord to do here is, is that people come into this room and they're, they have permission to dream now because the fathering spirit is present, right? But Joseph is a dreamer and you guys know the story the ones that came from production and and all of Leah's boys they're jealous of Joseph generationally 
That which was born in production becomes jealous of the next generation, but that which is born in affection knows he's loved. And he's strutting that he's loved. He's like, everyone's gonna bow to me. And the kid had to work through some things. 17 years old, he's having dreams of his parents bowing to him. But jealousy hits the sons of Leah, the sons born of dysfunctional vision and weariness. They throw him into a pit. Listen to this. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison, though he's innocent. And for 13 years, this goes on. 13 years. And God took him through a process, not his brothers. If you actually read, if you just keep reading it, his brothers come and they start to apologize. He said, you didn't do this to me, but this was the Lord. God took him through a process and God will never put you through what he hasn't given you the grace to overcome. He knew Joseph, listen, could could persevere because Joseph had the right perspective that leads back to my father put a coat on me. His perspective was, I am loved. And that foundation, it set him up to reign. He knew his father didn't throw him in a pit but the jealousy of his brothers did. And I would, I would dare to say that potentially what carried him through 13 years, I mean, to the point that he comes to two servants of Pharaoh in prison and says, why are you guys having a bad day? What was it about Joseph that just made him so different that he just seemed immovable? And I would say Bethuel equals weariness, jealousy, insecurity. But this father Israel, He equals sons that know how to overcome some things because he put a coat on him and it says that he loved him. He adored his son, Joseph. This man reunites his brothers in his heart. He weeps over Leah's sons and he restores a family. The father Joseph was, and here's where I want to end because I want you to see two generational lines. You have Bethuel that leads to all of this stuff in Leah producing sons out of production. And you have fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name, Israel. Israel becomes a father to many nations. Two sons from affection. And in that line, Joseph has two sons over the course of those 13 years. They have this encounter, Joseph and Jacob, when Jacob comes. You guys following me? Jacob comes and him and Joseph have this encounter and Jacob says, these sons of yours, they're mine too. Father, father, father. Ephraim and Manasseh. If you study and you go on, there's no tribe of Joseph and you've learned this. Joseph is not named among the 12 tribes. Leah's sons were, but not Joseph. And Joseph had more right to be named among the 12 tribes than any of the other brothers. If it wasn't for him, they all would have died. But listen to this. God took this dreamer who had a strut and brought him through a process of humility and turned him into a father that would say, if my only role was to make sure my sons have a seat at the table, then it was well worth everything I went through. The name Manasseh means Yahweh has caused me to forget. The name Ephraim means I shall be doubly fruitful 
consider Joseph. I went through 13 years of hell. I should be the one that everybody knows my name. And he says, because he had a father that loved him, he was able to go, you know what? I don't need to be named among the 12 tribes. Make sure Manasseh and Ephraim have a seat at the table. I can say in my life, we have been blessed to have a father and a mother that have done that very thing. My dad had two sons. And I have watched it played out in our lives. You know, like churches deal with Jezebel, families deal with Jezebel, and, and, and we need to be aware. The Bible says, do not tolerate her. But can I tell you, in 30 years of being around my dad, Jezebel's tried to creep in, but she's never been able to make ground in the church. Not one time at Resurrection Life Center. They, that spirit never was able to get in. Why? Because a father and authority was present. When there's family manipulation, it, can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. You're too open as a family. You're too covering as a family. But I have watched, you guys know the story. The reason we are in this room is because in 2019, six weeks before my dad stopped everything he was doing, he said, hey son, the Lord spoke to me through a dream. I'm stopping what I'm doing even after my brother, my older brother had just been installed as the senior pastor of Resurrection Life. A month later, they both sit me down. This is what God is saying. You're starting a church and we're gonna back you up. What are you talking about? And we've watched God bring fruit. Last month, 43 nations, not because I'm anointed, not because we have good worship, but because a fathering spirit said, I'm not going to where I need to get to unless I change lanes. And my job is gonna be to support you now. And I said, this doesn't make sense to me. He said, don't worry, it doesn't have to. Follow God and hear him and build the church. And we started with like 30 people and God has done a miraculous work in three and a half years. All because one guy was going, I don't need a seat at the table. If I'm never known, if I never get to 43 nations, it doesn't matter. But my two sons, make sure they have a seat at the table. So my thing is, is what is it gonna be like for William and Benjamin? I feel like the Lord wants to break generational curses today. He's breaking what your parents said, leaders that have treated you poorly, people that have treated you inappropriately, that weren't there for you, that never covered you. I have news for you. You have a family now. And it's, and it's time to get free from the past and God is gonna give you Manasseh. He's gonna cause you to forget. And while he's causing you to forget, he's gonna give you an Ephraim. I will make you doubly fruitful, doubly fruitful. I'm gonna read this and we're gonna pray. In 1996, this man wrote this. Some of you have heard this. This, has, this absolutely blew me away. I felt like I was reading about my dad when I read this. This man wrote this thing called the kingdom man. And I just wanna read it to you. And I wanna encourage you, I'm not this. I strive to be this one day, but I'm too young right now to be this. But I want the older generation to especially hear me because I think sometimes there's a narrative of young people, young people, what about me, what about me? Without you? There's no fathers and no mothers. It could be one conversation. Pastor Mark, who's sitting in the back, I, I look at him like a father. 
He's been in my life since we, I mean, changed, was around us changing diapers. And now we're still all together. He pulled me into my little room back here one day and he gave me counsel. And this one conversation so impacted me. I said, thank you for coming and talking to me like a father. It could be one conversation with one young person in this room that is confused and they need some stability to come around them and say, I'm here, what do you need? Because we can't do it all from the pulpit. We can't disciple 400 people. We've got to start building homes of family. But I want you to listen to this and this is what we should strive to be. It says, this is called the kingdom man. True success is not achieved. True success is received. Kingdom men work out their faith. Worldly men cause others to know their methods. Kingdom men cause others to know their God. The success of worldly men can be defined in, a certain, in certain observable methods, methods that can be cataloged and emulated and sold for profit. The success of a kingdom man is, is attributed to only one thing. That one thing is obedience to the spoken word of Yahweh. And while that obedience may be manifested in observable acts, emulation of those acts by others will never bring the hope for success. That is so powerful. I need, I need to read that part again. The success of kingdom men is, is attributed to only one thing. The one thing is obedience to the spoken word of God. And while that obedience may be manifested in observable acts, emulation of those acts by others will never bring the hope for success. Therefore, a kingdom man's success does not produce much in the way of a product that can be marketed at great prices, bringing great wealth to the man. But the kingdom man's success does cause glory to be given to Yahweh. Worldly men base their success upon information, information that can be cleverly edited to smooth away rough edges, rough edges cleverly packaged, advertised, and marketed in order to bring great wealth to the, its author. Listen to this. Kingdom men know that their success is based upon an uncompromised obedience to revelation. This is what we've seen. True revelation is biting, sharp, provocative, challenging, an ever-present threat to the status quo. God, do it here. Therefore, kingdom men are almost always misunderstood, lonely, rejected in their time, most often remaining a voice in the wilderness. They are recognized, honored, and even revered, but always by another generation, never by their own. Therefore, kingdom men are content to be leaders of a remnant, the keepers of the flame, the preservers of the seed, the protectors of tomorrow's Abraham, Isaac's, Moses's, John the Baptist, and yes, even the Christ. No wonder that heaven and earth together cry out for the manifestation of the sons of God. I want to encourage you to make a commitment this morning that what hangs over your life is that I be a leader of a remnant, that I be a keeper of the flame. That when I look at my kids, I think to myself, like wives, my wife, Emily, you're a preserver of the seed. You're a protector of the tomorrow's Davids. No one's just born. No one's just here. Every single person in this room has a specific and unique purpose from God. You're not your parents' idea. You are God's idea. And everything you've gone through, what the enemy meant for evil, Joseph said, God has used for good. It was not you, but it was him. And I just feel like 
Deliverance is needed from old wounds. And I feel like many of you need to have a moment of, no, my name will not be Ben Onai, but my name's gonna be Benjamin. And my kids are gonna be Benjamin and their kids are gonna be Benjamin. And the whole earth will see the glory of God through a people that are not interested in just a bunch of hype and a bunch of people, but interested in building families. Thank you again for joining us for this podcast. We pray that above all, your life was touched by his presence. If you're interested in learning more about the church or getting plugged in, you can visit us at www.risennation.org or follow us on social media to stay up to date with all that God is doing here. We love you guys. God bless.